Let's come to our God in prayer as we get ready to look at his word. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we grieve the fact that we are separated from one, one another again tonight physically. Uh, but we give you thanks that we can still listen to your word proclaimed. Uh, help me to teach it faithfully and apply it rightly. And may you grow our faith in Jesus and encourage us to keep living his way by the power of your spirit at work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, can you think of a time where someone ministered to you God's word or, or Jesus' love in a way that was just wonderfully encouraging? Uh, perhaps it was a timely visit by a pastor or a growth group leader. Perhaps it was one of those revolutionary conversations with a youth group leader at the end of a Friday night. Perhaps it was a kind Christian co-worker who invited you into their life and perhaps led you to Christ. Uh, there was a moment of ministry towards me that has always stood out. Uh, it was maybe around 14, 15 years ago when I lived in a share house in McLeod. Uh, at the time, I had developed pneumonia and I'd spent the previous night in hospital. Uh, when I arrived home the following day, I was completely wrecked. All I could do was collapse on our couch, feel sorry for myself and kind of just get frustrated at why the house was just such a mess in the living room. In fact, I can still picture it now. Uh, empty packets and bottles and rubbish all over the floor. No one had bothered to clean up after some sort of function the night before. And then who should arrive at our door but the senior pastor for a visit of me? And I'll be honest, uh, the first thing I think is, oh no, not Neil. I don't want my senior minister seeing me lying down with all this rubbish around me. What's he going to think of us? What's he going to think of me? Nevertheless, he comes in and finds me on the couch. I watched to see what his reaction would be to the mess around me. To my surprise, no reaction. He then moved some junk off one, one chair and took a seat. At which point, my oblivious housemate walks past wearing nothing but a towel, having just had a shower. Again, he doesn't bat an eyelid. And for the entirety of the visit, uh, I actually felt no judgment from Neil for the state of our house, just genuine care and concern for my well-being. I remember him taking the time to explain why it hurt to breathe when you have pneumonia. Uh, he spoke to me kindly, prayed with me, I think he even read some scripture with me. I knew my pastor cared for me in that moment and it's stuck with me. See, Christian ministry is a powerful force. We know that when it's bad, it's terrible, but when it's good, it's wonderful. But it's not just senior ministers who minister to people. Many of you have likely found yourself in positions of responsibility where you're teaching and you're caring for others. Perhaps in growth youth group or Sunday school, kids club, growth group, perhaps with a friend in strife, or perhaps witnessing to someone interested in Christianity. So it's important that we actually all know what it looks like to minister to others well when we have a, responsibility, a level of responsibility towards them. 
And in tonight's passage, God gives us an example of a good ministry in Paul and his missionary team to Thessalonica, a ministry that we can all learn from. So what I'm going to do is think about the slander against Paul's ministry in Thessalonica that probably led to this passage being written, and then we'll think about how Paul defends his ministry and and what we can take away from that description that will help us minister to others in a helpful and good way too. So let's first think about uh, the context of this passage, Paul's ministry slandered. Uh, One of the interesting uh, features about this letter to the Thessalonians is just how much time Paul gives to defending his ministry in Thessalonica and his love for the Thessalonian believers there. Uh, It takes up chapters 2 and 3, which is about 50% of the entire letter. Now, in light of this, it would appear that some who had opposed Paul and the gospel when he first arrived in that city had actually continued to slander him following his departure. Uh, We know from Acts 17 that there were a number of hostile Jews in Thessalonica who, we are told, were jealous because a number of people in that city had decided to leave Judaism and the synagogue community to follow Christ and join the local church community. In fact, their jealousy burns so hot that we read of them inciting a vicious mob to go get Paul and shut him down. But even after Paul was forced out of that city and told to leave by some concerned believers there, it would appear that his opponents kept up their opposition against him via a campaign of slander within the local community of believers. You see, one of the best ways to destroy a message or a movement that you don't like is to discredit the messenger. And I think if you look at verse 3 in our passage tonight, you get a taste of kind of three main accusations served up against Paul and his team. So you listen to what Paul's saying their ministry was not in verse 3. For the appeal we make, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. See, Paul and his team were likely being accused of speaking in error, saying misleading things about Jesus. They were accused of coming with impure motives, morally corrupt, in it for personal gain, and accused of trying to trick the Thessalonians, master manipulators, knowing how to win over gullible townsfolk. I've summarised their character attack on Paul with three Ds. Paul, he's deluded. He's depraved, he's devious. And so you can imagine Paul's opponents speaking with the Thessalonian believers. Paul and his ministry, guys, was dodgy from the top to bottom. Now, you don't want to be a part of that, do you? Come on back to the synagogue community. You'll get the truth there. You'll be around people you can trust. So how does Paul respond to all of this? Well, he writes this passage to the Thessalonians and tells them, guys, think back to our time together and let the evidence of our ministry to you speak for itself. Now, if I could summarize Paul's 
sort of three main rebuttals of, to his opponents. I think it'll be something like this. Thessalonians, you know we spoke the truth of the gospel to you. You know we acted with integrity. And number three, you know we loved you deeply. So let's think about the first one. You know we spoke the truth of the gospel to you. Uh, Most of us hate the idea that we're being lied to, particularly by those who are supposed to give us the truth. Uh, That's why the idea of fake news, I think, hits such a nerve with people. The idea that journalists in the media could be reporting false information is infuriating. Uh, In Paul's day, it would appear that Paul was perhaps being labelled as a purveyor of fake news. Paul, he's deluded about the message of the gospel. And so Paul reassures the Thessalonians here, we are not deluded, and you're not deluded for believing the gospel. The gospel is not fake news. The gospel message that says Christ died for sinners, that he rose again, that he's Lord of all and the giver of life, that's true. And that message is powerful and good. And that's why we're prepared to suffer to bring it to you, says Paul. See, look at where he starts at verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So it's like Paul saying, why would we keep suffering for the gospel if it wasn't true or life-saving. And notice that Paul points out, points to the effects of the gospel truth in their life. Verse 1, it, it didn't come as an empty, untrue message. It was powerful. See, remember back to last week, chapter 1, verse 5, our gospel came to you, uh, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Uh, The Thessalonians had not only been saved by the gospel, but changed by it. The Spirit had convicted them that Jesus was worth giving up everything for. The Spirit had filled their hearts with joy because of Jesus. Paul's saying, look at the evidence of your own lives. Uh, This was true and a life-changing message that you heard. We don't need the approval of men. God clearly approves of our message, verse 4. He gave us the courage to keep speaking it, verse 2, and he provides the results, verse 1. Paul was not deluded by a false message, but devoted to the truth of the gospel. And this reminds us in our various contexts or areas of ministry, whether it's youth group, kids club, our home, our growth group, that we must keep the truth of the gospel central. You see, we are not deluded in believing or teaching the message that Christ died to bring people to God. We, like the Thessalonians, have been saved by that message and we are being changed by that message. The gospel has not been without results among us, so let's keep it central in our ministries. 
And that's why in youth group and Sunday school, you know, you guys who are leaders aren't telling the kids, just be good people, but trust in your good saviour. You see, they need the gospel, not just simply good works or moralism. And the gospel tells the sick and grieving person that you're ministering to that there is hope within and beyond the grief or pain. Jesus is with them and his gospel tells us that he's bringing about a new creation, free of pain and suffering. Keep speaking the gospel. Uh, The same is true in our conversations with people who aren't yet Christian. They need God's good truth. See, our family and friends won't be reconciled to God through a message of morals, nor by accepting any social or political point of view that we're just really passionate about. We keep the focus on Jesus, who is the way, the truth, the life. Uh, One person in Christianity Explored last year said to me at the start of the course, that they would be a tough nut to crack. And at the end of the course, I I asked them where where they thought they were at with God. And this person said to me, well, I'm still figuring out where, where I'm at with God, but I do like what I see in Jesus. And you see, of course they do. Because Jesus and what he did for us is good. If we keep the focus on the truth of Jesus, on his love and compassion for sinners like us, on his mighty power, on his sacrificial death on a cross, on his promise of forgiveness and eternal life, well, that is compelling. And if you're watching at home tonight and you actually want to find out more about how good Jesus is, feel free to get in contact with me. Or come and join us. Sign up for our next course of Christianity Explored in a week. Jesus is worth hearing about. The message of the gospel is true and it's good. So keep it central in your ministries. But second, Paul responds by telling the Thessalonians, you know that we acted with integrity. See, manipulation and hidden agendas have no place in Christian ministry. And when such moments do occur, it's actually a shameful and tragic thing to behold. Uh, This was certainly shown to be true in the golden age of televangelists. Uh, Throughout the 80s and 90s, a number of men and women claiming to be honest preachers of the word were exposed for their corruption and financial greed. Some of these people would appear on uh, TV segments claiming to provide messages from God, blessings from God, healings from God, if you could only donate to the number at the bottom of your screen. Uh, One tele-evangelist was even nice enough to throw in a free sachet of miracle spring water, Uh, Needless to say, the tele-evangelist has not had a great reputation in the wider world for a while. Now, Paul, it would seem, was being kind of put in the corrupt tele-evangelist club by his opponents. But of course, in Paul's day, they didn't have the joy of tele-evangelists. 
what they were more familiar with was what was called the itinerant philosopher. Uh, someone who would wander from city to city, teaching some new attractive uh, philosophy or religion, passing on wisdom at a price and then moving on. Paul, he's just another one of those fly-in, fly-out, slippery philosophers out to make a quick buck. But see, look at how Paul responds to those kind of charges and accusations in the middle of verse 4. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. And you can really start to hear Paul's passion. Come on, remember how we acted among you. Verse 5, you know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you, not from anyone else. It's like Paul saying, uh, when did you see us asking for money? You didn't, did you? Uh, when did you see us kind of buddying up with the well-to-do types among you? You didn't see that either. Uh, when did you ever hear us telling you to put your trust in us and not in the Lord Jesus? You didn't hear that either from us. Because we acted with integrity. Our sole purpose was to pass on to you God's life-saving message of the gospel, which we did honorably. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. See, Paul even reminds them that he didn't throw his weight around as an apostle. See, even though Paul... Uh, had actually been personally commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus to preach the gospel, he'd actually didn't use that authority to compel or force people to do what he wanted or believe what he wanted. You know, he wasn't like going around saying, you know, I am the Apostle Paul, kind of a big deal. No, because Paul had godly integrity, we read in verse 6, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. That is, there was no attitude of superiority that was being abused here. Uh, Paul likens his team to children who have no ability to influence or compel. In our ministry among you, we acted with integrity, guys. And you see, Paul's words here remind us that we need to, likewise, keep watch on our lives in our ministries. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, uh, Paul reminds Timothy that he is not only to watch his doctrine, that is, what he teaches, but his life, how he lives, and it's actually through both life and doctrine that Paul says you will save yourself and your hearers. You see, how we live matters to God. Our motives in ministry matter to God. Uh, we don't sign up to serve in youth group or, or kids club or any other ministry to win favour or credibility from others. We do it because the gospel's worth sharing. We love and serve because Christ loved and served us first at the cross. 
Our conduct in ministry matters to God. And so if you're a leader in a ministry, if you have responsibility over others, be careful that you don't use your influence or your charisma, if you have any, to attract people to yourself. We want people to be attracted to Jesus who we proclaim. So be careful not to abuse your position of authority in any way. Uh, I was recommended a book during my college years on some of the dangers of entering into pastoral ministry. Uh, It speaks of helpful things like living with uh, godly integrity, as we've been thinking about. And the book is actually very good. But the kind of awkward thing about this book, at least the edition that I have, is the endorsements that are written on the back cover uh, by sort of influential Christian US pastors. Out of the five different endorsements written on the back, three of the pastors have since had to step down from their ministries. Uh, These men have sadly become examples of the very thing the book warns against. One stepped down because he committed with adultery with a woman who was under his pastoral care. Another because of alleged bullying in his church and authoritarian behavior. But you see, it's not just the, the out there mega church pastors in which that's a problem. The insidious lust for power, for pleasure, for recognition actually lies in every sinner, including you and I. And we would do well to recognize that. Pray for God's grace to live his way and keep watching our lives in ministry. But third, Paul tells the Thessalonians, you know we loved you deeply. You see, it's likely that Paul's opponents in Thessalonica were sowing seeds of doubt about Paul's love for the believers there. Uh, When persecution broke out at the end of uh, their ministry in that city, Paul, as we thought about earlier, was forced to leave abruptly. In Acts 17, verse 10, uh, it tells us that the brothers made a snap decision to send Paul and Silas away to the neighboring city of Berea in the middle of the night. Uh, But but you can imagine how Paul's opponents could have possibly capitalized uh, on the shock of his sudden departure. You can imagine them saying, what sort of person, right, just abandons you in the night without saying goodbye? You know, this guy, he was just in it for for the praise and the popularity, and as soon as that disappears, so does he. He doesn't really love you. He was just out to use you. See, think of someone that you deeply love in your life, someone you go to when things get rough, someone who you defend at all costs, maybe a parent, a spouse, a friend, a child even. Now think for a moment that someone sort of comes into that person's life and tries to convince them that you don't really care about them. I know I'd be infuriated gutted and determined to prove the sincerity of my love. I'm sure many of you would too. 
And you see, that's Paul also in verses 7 and following. He is determined to show that his ministry to the Thessalonians was marked by a genuine and deep relationship of love. See, look at the image that he first goes to from verse 7. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. I mean, it's harder to think of a stronger image of fierce human love than a mother for her kids. I've seen it three times over now. It is fierce. But that's where Paul goes. You weren't just another audience to us. You were like family, like our very children. And you guys know this. Uh, you guys know this. Because we shared our lives with you, he says. Look in verse 8. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share uh, not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. See, Paul's words here remind us that that our ministry to others, uh, our evangelism to others, is not just words or programs or rosters. But life, we do life with people in ministry. People need to be invited into our lives to know the real us and experience our real and tangible love so that they know that we actually care about them. And this is why last year, I think, was actually so hard because so much of life is done in the home and yet we were barred for so long from entering into the homes of each other. Uh, sometimes when people speak with me about their desire to enter into full-time gospel ministry, perhaps as a pastor or maybe a student worker, uh, I'll usually outline three aspects that might be helpful for them to think about. It was presented to me when I was thinking about that as the three C's, character, competency, conviction. You know, do you have the Christian character that the Bible requires? Uh, do you have, uh, dem- have you demonstrated a level of competency to teach the Bible? Do you have a conviction to give your life in service to Jesus, even when it's very challenging? Uh, the three C's are good things to think about that primarily come out of Paul's uh, teaching in 1 Timothy and Titus. But Paul reminds us in this text that ministry that God approves of, that's good, actually demands another C from us. Care. Care about people. See, not just a willingness to teach them, but to open your life to them and to love them in real ways. Having them over for meals, going on walks with them, helping them to think through Christianly dilemmas that they're going through. Perhaps helping them move house. Real and open love. And see, Paul does this, doesn't he? Look at what he says in verse 9. Where does he go? Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to burden anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Now, we aren't told what Paul and his team did for a part-time job. Uh, We know that he had skills as a tent maker. But 
The point is that Paul and his team loved these people at their own expense, preaching during the day and then perhaps working late into the evening to cover their own costs of food and accommodation so as not to burden the believers. It's kind of like that devoted father who works two jobs so that he can keep his kids going to that particular school that he and his wife are keen on. And actually, Paul finishes on the note of fatherly love, doesn't he? Look at verse 11. For you know that we dealt with you, with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. See, Paul may have been like a working father, but he wasn't like a distant one. He knew his spiritual children and put time into discipling them with care and affection. He and his team loved the Thessalonians. Uh, As someone who used to work in an eye clinic, I have always loved a particular story about Bruce Olson, a missionary to the indigenous people of Colombia and Venezuela. Uh, During an epidemic of conjunctivitis in the tribe where Olson ministered, uh, Bruce Olson had great difficulty in convincing uh, the tribe's people that his Western antibiotic eye drops would be of benefit to them. They didn't want to take them, and their conditions all just kept getting worse. So in an act of love, Olson went up to an infected person scooped out some goop from their eye and put it in his own eye. He waited for the infection to set in and then showed them the power of antibiotic eye drops. They saw the effects and they did likewise. You see, because he loved those he ministered to, he was actually prepared to suffer for them. The Apostle Paul, Bruce Olson, remind us that that great ministry demonstrates great love. Uh, But you see, these two men were just imitating the greater love shown by the Lord Jesus that they follow. Uh, We love because we have first been loved. Christ suffered the extreme humiliation of a Roman cross upon which he died. He did this because he loved us and wanted us to be forgiven by God and enjoy life and relationship with God, to have peace with God. We, like Paul, like Bruce Olson, follow in Jesus' footsteps. Our love leads us to buy extra groceries for a growth group dinner. Our love leads us to push through awkwardness and speak of Christ to our neighbours. Our love leads us to give up part of our weekend to visit a brother or sister in our growth group who's sick or grieving. Our love leads us to invite other brothers and sisters who we may not be close with over for a meal so that perhaps they could be a bit more connected in the community here. You know we loved you deeply, says Paul. Uh, What does a ministry approved by God look like? 
Well, the example we get in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12 of Paul and his team, that shows us. We keep the truth of the gospel central, we watch over our lives, and we pursue Christ-like love. And you see, in a lockdown moment like we are right in now, it's actually good to remember where Paul's strength to be that kind of minister actually comes from. You see it back in verse 2. But with the help of our God, he writes, we dare to tell you the gospel in the face of strong opposition. You see, there are some moments like persecution or like a global pandemic that throws us into new lockdowns that make teaching people the gospel and loving them just that bit more challenging. I felt that all through last year, as I'm sure you did. And I suspect the very thought that we would, again, possibly have to lead our growth group via Zoom or care for a person remotely or lead our youth group class via Zoom, I suspect that makes some of you shudder. When I heard that we were in another lockdown for five days, uh, like Helen, I, I think I was just really dis- disappointed. I mean, I had teed up with a few of you to serve on tea and coffee tonight. You were supposed to be with me here tonight, and we're all supposed to be having tea and coffee. I was looking forward to that cuppa and the fellowship that it would encourage among us. And Lord willing, we still will have that. You see, how do we keep speaking truth, acting with integrity and showing love when things seem just unpredictable and kind of just overwhelming? With the help of our God. That is how. So let's actually, in this moment, keep trusting God to sustain us in the ministries he's called us to. God is good. He is faithful to us. He's demonstrated that by sending his only son for us. And let's pray that through our commitment to gospel truth, godly integrity and Christ-like love, even this moment of unpredictability and this year as a whole will be like Thessalonica, that it will be not without results, but full of gospel fruit among us. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight in this passage. And we know that in and of ourselves, we are weak. Weak people, prone to sin, prone to selfishness. But thank you that you don't leave us to ourselves. Thank you that you have poured your spirit out on us through faith in Jesus. Help us by your spirit to be people who are equipped to serve and love those around us. Help us to keep speaking the truth of the gospel, be godly in our conduct, and filled with a deep love for the people here in the 5 p.m. service. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.